mean, who sets the greatest story ever told with outcasts like shepherds who are the down and out? Who does that? Who uses the quote-unquote off-scouring of the earth to borrow a phrase from the Apostle Paul to be part of the greatest story ever told? Well, God did. Who uses a peasant girl from a town of 50 named Nazareth, never had two pence to rub together, and yet she becomes numbered as the greatest among all women. And we mentioned yesterday morning in church that for 2,000 years, her name has influenced more names among women than all of the other names together. Who writes stories like that? Seems like the, the wise men showing up with things like gold and frankincense and myrrh would have captured all of the headlines. The kings like Herod, they don't play a very positive role in the scripture. If you can imagine the horror of this, Herod, so jealous that a baby could inherit his throne, ordered other babies killed. What happens when you get a king on the throne like that? Brutality and horror. And it says the background of the day was Rachel. Rachel, symbolic of a woman of the covenant of God, weeping for her children. The setting is difficult, but it seems like God goes out of his way. Plato, the great thinker, couldn't have imagined a God of perfection who was willing to take on flesh and blood that was considered evil by nature, put it on and come down and be numbered among us. It just didn't make sense. And so we ask ourselves, why did he do it? Why is the story that is the real story of Christmas fraught with so many questions. Why did he do it? Can you imagine the God of whom we sing? He's got the whole world in his hands. Who hung the stars, the moon, the planets in space. Now wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. The God who is world without end from everlasting to everlasting. Now having to cry so he can let his mama know he wants to nurse at her breast. To live for another day. It's a story filled with so many paradoxes. I don't think you could ever ponder it in its depths and do justice. But there are some things that we know for certain. When Christ was born in Bethlehem, there was a tremendous reordering of life. You know, the prophet Isaiah said that all of humanity had turned to our own way. And we'd gone astray like sheep. So what does a God do when he made people to give him glory and we all turned astray? A lot of us think he would do just like what Jethro Gibbs does. He'd give us a big whack in the back of the head, right? Why not? 
Can you imagine that he lays aside all of his godness to become a baby so he can show us his love? Hey, does anything reorder a house any more than a newborn baby? Or a manger for that matter. I mean everything shifts, right? My wife Darina and I got a puppy three weeks ago. That was a bad idea in the Christmas season for a pastor to get a puppy three weeks ago. She had little to do with it, so you know who the brainless one was in that equation. But I just, I just think about how much our three weeks have been different because of a puppy, for heaven's sakes. But a baby, everyone knows that a baby recenters and reorders everything. He reordered People groups, like the scholars, like the peasants. He changed life for everybody who was a part, and he brought evil thrones to the ground. God, on this Christmas Eve, I'm sure, for our outstanding community in Mullica Hill, would love to give us a fresh message that he's gone to great lengths to ask your permission if you would let him be the center of your life. Of all of the things he could have done to come as a baby where immediately everything changes. And he's asking permission for us to be a part of his family like Joseph and Mary were a part of his family. You know, it's, it's hard to come to terms with, isn't it? That a perfect God who loves with an everlasting love, like the video says, who gave birth to love. That a God that loving wants you and wants me to be a part of the story. It's hard to come to terms with, but he does. And the book goes to great lengths to tell us that all people groups, no matter who they are, the wealthiest and the lowliest, even the impoverished and those who are in that day headed for a debtor's prison, God wants to come and he wants to own us as his children. The disciple John again says, look at what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Good news tonight, brothers and sisters. As you go back to the celebration of Christmas and the benediction is said here, go back with one sentence ringing in your ear. God wants you to be so centered as part of his family that he's willing to go to any lengths to show us that love. You are part of the family of God by grace through faith. He's the center. Second thing I want to say this evening is he's not only the center, but he's the key. He made us. He made us to be like him, and he made us to be in fellowship with him, and so he did what was logical to him. The mastermind of all of the ages, he just came to us as one of us. He wants us to know that he's the key. I think that's why the scholars of the day had to come bringing gifts.
regal gifts, gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. They gave the best they had because when God shows up, it's life-changing. The Apostle Paul, who was a great lawyer in his day, a great lawyer. As a matter of fact, the scholars tell us that the Apostle Paul had to memorize word for word Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy to pass his final exam in law school. And he did it. That's a pretty good mind that can do that, right? Some of us have trouble with John 3.16. I remember when I was teaching seminary classes and I'd ask seminary, uh, future seminarians to, to quote the Bible. Inevitably, one wise guy in the class would say, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. I got my hand all on that one. I thought, you're going to make a doozy. You're going to make a doozy. Jesus wept. But we can't remember those things. But the Apostle Paul had the first five books of the law memorized word for word. And do you know what the Apostle Paul said when he wrote one of his books to the churches in Asia Minor? He said, by him, and he's speaking of Christ, by him, all things exist. That's what John said, that he created all things. By him, all things exist. And through him, all things hold together. I think life would be a lot better if we recognized that it's in Christ that our lives hold together. Marriages hold together through Jesus Christ. He's the inventor of marriage. Parenting and relationships between children hold together. Does that mean there's never any problems? I'm not saying that at all. Been a husband and am a husband and been a parent and am a parent. No, but it holds together. He's got the plan. As a matter of fact, he sets the bar on our character high enough to show us that uh, if we live life like Christ himself lived life with his spirit being our helper, our lives get better. Jesus said, here's why I came. To give you life more abundantly than the life you have. Isn't it great on Christmas Eve to know you can come to church and the babe of Bethlehem grows into uh, both man and God and what he teaches us as an adult is that he came so that you could have a better quality of life. And tonight it's a joy to preach that as a central component of the gospel. Life is better when Jesus Christ is your key. And Christ loves it. He came. He said, I've come to give you newness of life and give you life more abundant. So he's not just our center. He's our key. Do you feel like life can get unglued a little bit, even in wonderful places like Mullica Hill? Wow. Isn't it fantastic riding in the dark down Mullica Hill on our main street and to see the beauty of the lights? That's the way Jesus wants to light your life, wants to give you guidance, wants to give you his hope. By him, we find a key for living and life is better. Then finally, uh, 
there's a message that's unfailing for me. I sat this week beside one of our, our longtime faithful members many nights on Christmas Eve. She played our organ. After a very difficult battle with cancer, she went home to be with the Lord. But while I was sitting with her, Miss Etta Jane Heiser, I said, Etta Jane, I want you to think when you're in the pain that, that you're in, I want you to think about the people that taught you at Bible school. I want you to think about the people that taught you at Sunday school. I want you to think about the people that made you smile as you came to church all those years. And you not only attended, you served the Lord with gladness because those are the people that are waiting for you. And then this promise from the scripture, God's going to perfect everything about you. This week has been a tough week. One of, uh, one of my former youth group members in another church took her life and she left behind two nine-year-old twins and an 11-year-old. And her, her husband is uh, feeling destitute. What an awful, awful thing. And the worst was in four, four funerals, the last of which will be next Saturday here in the sanctuary, two of them were suicides. That's so stark. That's so harsh. That's so real. But one person came up and, and it, was, uh, it was the young man's mother who took his life. And she said, what do I do now? What do I do when the Bible says if you destroy your body, which is the temple of God, God's going to destroy you? I said, well, the first thing you do is start rightly interpreting that scripture. You see, if God counted it against us when we had a moment of mental weakness, what happens to all of our grandmothers and great-grandmothers and grandfathers when, when they no longer can think clear and rationally? You think God turns them loose and says, you're not going to be in my kingdom? Or do you think that the God who loved you so much, he humbled himself to a manger? is trying to tell us, I got your back. I got your back. I got both sides. I got your front. And that's why the book of Acts says, it's in him we move, we breathe, we have our being. It's a wonderful thing to have the privilege of being a preacher. I've never been worthy enough to be a pastor. But I get the privilege and it's an awesome thing to sit beside somebody and say, cancer is not going to be the thing that defined your life. Or I can sit with a grieving family and said, a moment of mental weakness so that somebody could take their life is not the final word on your son's, your daughter's life. I'd like to tell those twins that there have been a lot of people in the world after living with Christ faithfully, they, they uh, got Alzheimer's or dementia or something that interrupted the mind. But I want to tell you this. Jesus came to be Lord of everybody. And I want you to hear a direct quote from the scripture. God 
is not willing that any should perish. So I want to say he's not only wanting to be your center or to be your key. He wants you to trust him so that he has your back for all of eternity. Do you believe that tonight? I believe that tonight. That's why I put it in the center of the Christmas message. Do you know who finally got that? Mary. She looked in her heart and all of the things God said he would do to love his children. She watched her son do in the flesh. You know what the end result is? The Bible says that Jesus took what would have been a fallen human being and because he took an earthly body, he stuck it into the eternal center of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there sits in the middle of an eternal spirit, flesh and blood, that Jesus Christ redeemed. And do you know why he did it? He wanted to show every human being that there's room in God for you. What a truth. What a night to celebrate. That Christ became such a center of human life that he became our key. And when he did, he's got your back, not only now, but for all of eternity. Good news. Go tell it and live it. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.